Welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, as you know, author of Manicure Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It is February 4th as I'm recording this episode with literary agent John Cusick. It is the start of Black History Month. Uh, so obviously the perfect thing for that is a book by a white guy. But after you've read several books uh, by black authors, maybe circle back to Manicure Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, my wife is black and this story was originally her baby. I uh, was a character named Banneker Jones, and I said, no, 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 not Jones Bones. That's that's where the creative author bit comes in. Uh, but she wanted to do a uh, black detective, and her father, uh, my father-in-law, would read her, uh, would drill her, rather, on uh, black history flashcards. And so a lot of the names in this book are taken direct from characters within, or from figures uh, within black history. So obviously Banneker is uh, named after Benjamin Banneker. Uh, who was one of the first surveyors of the District of Columbia, had some of the original planning done uh, for our capital. Uh, he also was an inventor and an author. Uh, he invented a great uh, wooden clock that uh, was still functioning until very recently. Uh, and he was supported by the Ellicott family. One of his best friends was named James Ellicott. Uh, and so that's where the name for the other character, Ellicott Skullworth, comes from. They're in Latimer City, uh, which takes its name from Lewis Latimer who invented the filament for the light bulb. Uh, history tends to revise uh, that Thomas Edison gets the credit uh, for the full invention of the light bulb. And while Thomas Edison was a pretty smart guy, he was really bad about sharing credit. And Lewis Latimer should absolutely get at least half of that credit for the light bulb. Uh, beyond that, uh, Banneker lives at, on Garrett Street at the cross section of Garrett and Morgan, which is my little joke because Garrett Morgan invented the stoplight. Uh, many, many references to Black History Plus. It's a fun book. You can get it for the low, low price of free. Uh, as if you want the ebook, the paperback and the audiobook uh, cost money but are also available. Uh, get yourself ready for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People coming soon. Under the super secret name Robert Kent, I've written some uh, horror novels. I've got the young adult novel, uh, All Together Now a Zombie Story, and All Right Now a Zombie Story. Uh, plus, if you really want me to say all the things out loud, the quiet parts out loud that I shouldn't be saying, uh, check out the Book of David. It is a five uh, serial installment horror novel. Um, filled with profanity and nastiness and all the things that you want. If you're curious about that, the first chapter, chapter one, is also available to download free as an ebook. Uh, as always, check us out at middlegradeninja.com. You can get interviews with authors, literary agents, publishing professionals, all kinds of interesting people, including today's guest, literary agent John Cusick. Uh, John, how are you today? I'm doing really well, man. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you. You are our very first uh, actual current literary agent. We had uh, Mary Cole on here and we had Amy Tipton, both wonderful, uh, but they're both now former literary agents. You're our first current literary agent. Uh, we've got some more folks coming up. We've got uh, Jennifer March Soloway next month, and then we've got um, Holly Root in April, uh, plus some other wonderful agents that haven't uh, committed to a date, but you are the first, so a lot of pressure. Uh, <laughs> hopefully this goes well uh, so that more literary agents will come on here in the future. Uh, if you're listening or watching this and you are a literary agent or a publishing professional and you'd like to come on the show, uh, head to middlegradeninja.com and get in touch with me. We'd love to have you. So, John, why don't we start with you giving uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of uh, your uh, work history so far and, uh, and what type of literary agent you are. 
Sure. So um, I've been a literary agent for, uh, well, probably around 10 or 11 years now. Um, I've always worked in the kids' book world from, you know, picture books up through middle grade and young adult. Uh, I'm just now starting to do a little bit of crossover into the adult space. Um, but yeah, I got my start back in 2007 as a, as a personal assistant to a literary agent. I was a dog walker and coffee fetcher and um, had the good fortune to be working with an agent. His name is Scott Trammell, um, who taught me a great deal about the, the industry and how to be an agent. Um, I moved on uh, since then. I'm now at uh, Folio Literary um, in the subset called Folio Junior. And, uh, you know, my focus has always been um, really iconoclastic and underrepresented voices and um, projects that feel really unique and, and, you know, first and foremost, books that really make you feel something, whether or not that's, you know, sadness, excitement, you know, laughter, what have you. Um, you know, and I really, really love working in the kids space. That's always been my home and my focus. So I'm really uh, excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you. Uh, give uh, esteemed audience uh, just kind of an overview of some of the clients that you've worked with so they have an idea where your taste may be run. Sure, absolutely. So um, one of my clients is uh, Julie Murphy, who's the author of Dumplin', which is now uh, a movie on Netflix with, with an amazing soundtrack by Dolly Parton. Um, coming out in May is uh, We Hunt the Flame by Hafsa Fazal, um, which is going to be really fantastic. That's coming out from FSG. That's a fantasy and really one of the most original and beautiful books I've, I've read in the past few years. Um, and another one of my clients is uh, Laura Sebastian. Uh, this is actually really nice timing because the sequel to her New York Times bestseller, Ash Princess, is coming out tomorrow as we're recording this on uh, on Tuesday the... Fifth, yes, uh, that's Lady Smoke. So that's coming out from Delacorte. So those are some of the YA authors that I work with. Um, I also have a middle grade list um, coming out in a few weeks is Josephine Cameron's Maybe a Mermaid from FSG. And that's an incredibly sweet story uh, about a young girl and her mother who go back to the summer camp where the mother grew up. Um, and uh, there is perhaps a mermaid, as the title might suggest. Um, so I do a real gamut of uh, picture books up through middle grade and YA. My list is really uh, eclectic. So I do some fantasy, I do some sci-fi, I do contemporary realistic, I do historical genre stuff. It's really all over the place. So I'm pretty genre agnostic, as they say. I'll kind of go anywhere. So those uh, authors who are watching this and already thinking, man, John Cusack, he sounds like the greatest literary agent that I could ever have. Um, <laughs> You're open, sounds like, to pretty much any project, just so long as it's in with, with NYA and middle grade. Are there any subjects that you're absolutely ruling out right up front? So I wouldn't rule out too many subjects, but I will say there are things that I'm probably not the best fit for. Um, so for instance, I don't do uh, a ton of poetry. Uh, I'm totally open to novels and verse, but straight poetry is not something I've done a lot uh, with quite yet. Um, the other thing I'd say is that I'm usually not the guy for sports stories, sort of about like the team making the big game. I was not a sports guy. I don't know if you can tell to look at me. Uh, I didn't watch the Super Bowl yesterday. So it, those things are usually not to my taste. Um, I'm always open to being surprised, but I kind of like to let people know that that's uh, usually not my kind of thing. 
My wife and I are celebrating uh, 14 years together, and she was just telling me uh, that it's been about 10 years since she's enjoyed a good Super Bowl now. Because uh, every every year when we we have our Super Bowl parties, we'd go out and you know everybody likes nachos. Uh, yeah, but then I I'd, I'd pull out my book and then commercial time, put the book down for a moment, and then back to it. <laughs> it's really it's all about the food, I think. At the end of the day, just getting to eat just mountains of really creative junk food. You know, that's that's what it's all about for me. Hey, this year we uh, ate healthy uh, snacks and watched Russian dolls on Netflix, which turned out was pretty good. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where do we go? Oh, I also wanted to make sure we plug your fabulous uh, YouTube show because you have a new YouTube channel just filled with uh, uh, information that will absolutely appeal to anybody interested in writing and publishing. Uh, so talk a little bit about Agent Brain, Writer Brain. Absolutely. So uh, Agent Brain Writer Brain is a YouTube channel that I um, co-write and produce with my wife, Molly, who is uh, also a former literary agent and current publishing person. Um, it's, uh, you know, we really like the idea of uh, YouTube videos. You know, I, I watch a lot of um, YouTube videos that break down different stories or movies or television shows to talk about how they're written and produced and whatnot. I find that stuff really fascinating. And I thought, um, you know, we could really bring some of our uh, expertise on the publishing side to talk to people about writing novels, working with agents, queries, and whatnot um, in sort of really condensed formats. You know, most of the videos are under 10 minutes long. Um, so we have about uh, five or six videos up on different topics right now. You can go check them out and like and subscribe if you like it. We're definitely going to be doing uh, a lot more in the future. Um, I think we have videos coming up on uh, writing antagonists, on voice, um, and on pacing as well, plus more stuff on like querying and finding agents. We're going to keep coming back to that topic because it's such a big one. Um, so yeah, it's, they're really fun to make. Um, if you are watching me sit in front of this uh, brick wall on YouTube right now, it looks a lot like that because we film them right here and um, usually with stupid pictures to the right side of my face. Um, so yeah, that's Agent Brain, Writer Brain. And um, I'm not quite sure how often we're going to be doing videos. We started out once a week over the holidays. I think uh, moving forward, it's probably going to be closer to once a month. But there's definitely some new content to come. Fascinating. And so what uh, when you're doing something like that, obviously, uh, authors everywhere appreciate that because we want to know your thoughts. We want to get your tips on, on writing the perfect query. Uh, in fact, we're not going to talk a lot about query writing today because I, I, I'm i over it. <laughs> I'm not crazy about the subject of query letters. Um, but you do have a video that I'm going to link to in the show notes, uh, specifically on uh, closest to the uh, best formula I've heard for how to write an outstanding query. In fact, since I brought it up, if you don't mind giving us just a short, short version of, of that perfect formula. Oh, sure. So um, I think there's a lot of advice out there on how to write queries, right? And um, it can get a little bit overwhelming, I've found, I think, when you're trying to not do anything wrong, right? Um, and so for writers who are feeling stuck and, and not quite sure how to open their query, I have a formula that I think is, you know, not the only way to do it, but but you'd be hard pressed to go wrong with this formula. Um, and, and I call it X is Y until Z. Um, where X is your main character, Y is the sort of circumstances they find themselves in at the beginning of the story, and then Z is the inciting incident. So the example I always use is, you know, 
Harry is a sad British boy until he finds out he's a wizard. Like that can be the opening line of your query. And it tells me a lot. It tells me who the main character is. It tells me a little bit about the world of the story. It tells me the basic setup. And you have plenty of room in your query to go into more detail from there. But if you're feeling stuck, that X plus Y into X is Y until Z can really sort of guide you and help you focus down the pitch so it's as digestible as possible. And obviously that, I mean, that to me sounds bulletproof. Um, I'm, I'm not accepting queries, but if I were, I would definitely stand up and take notice of, of ones that follow that formula. But I assume especially uh, for uh, folks that are thinking of querying you personally, if they're not using that that formula, then that already tells you that maybe they're not paying as, as much attention to the type of agent that they want uh, as they should be, right? No, no. I mean, you know, there's, like I said, there's a lot of different ra ways to write a query. And if someone, you know, doesn't happen to use that format or, or hasn't seen the, the video on it or one of my talks on it, that's obviously totally fine. You know, um, I think it's more of a guidepost, uh, you know, a way to sort of cement your query if, if you need the help. But, you know, there are other sort of more complex ways to open a query. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, so I'm, you know, always open to different varieties of, of query style. Uh, but, you know, I will say that um, oftentimes authors, I think, can forget that agents are usually reading queries, you know, in batches of 10 or 15 at a time. I think most of, uh, you know, me and most of my colleagues tend to read our queries all at once, you know, sort of in big batches. So we're seeing one after another. Um, and sometimes authors can include long preambles in their query, like, you know, dear, you know, most honorable Mr. Cusick, like, you know, when I was walking my dog the other day, I was thinking about the best way to open this query. And those are great and they're personal, but they can kind of go on for quite a while. And I find myself sort of scanning down to see, okay, what's the pitch? What's the pitch? Because I want to make my evaluation. Um, so starting out with that setup is usually a good idea because it lets the agent get an immediate picture of, you know, is this book potentially for me? And so well, let's 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 start there. When you've got a a, a full inbox of you know maybe sixty uh, queries or more waiting for you, and obviously you've got limited time because there's a whole bunch of stuff that agents have to do well beyond uh, reading queries. How do you quickly narrow down that list to something that that might be of interest to you? What what's your typical process for evaluating a query that you've received? Sure, I think that the um, the first and most important thing I'm looking for is is the concept of the novel something I think I can work with? So um, for instance, if it feels too familiar to too many things that have sold recently, that might be a quick no. Um, if it also feels a little bit too generic or quiet, that might be a no. So another way to put that might be, you know, here's my story. It's about a kid growing up and he deals with things like bullying and not getting along with his parents and having to study. Well, that could be a beautifully written book, but there's just not enough going on there to get me excited about it. And I don't think there'd be enough there to get editors excited about it. So first and foremost, I'm looking for a concept that feels sort of fresh and fun and intriguing. Um, if the concept is there, then I'm gonna look at the writing and say, okay, does the writing support the concept? Is the voice there? Is it well-written? Is it well put together? Um, so those are really like A and B when I'm reading a query. Query letter comes first, then, then comes the writing. Um, beyond that, I sort of look for signals in the way the query letter is written. Um, not all authors have to be ingenious query letter writers, though I do think that it's an important part of a business relationship to be able to sort of, in a concise way, talk about your work and about yourself. Um, so, you know, I would certainly take on a project that I liked, even if the query letter was far from perfect. So I don't want authors to feel 
too much pressure in that way. You know, a good book will speak for itself. Um, but if the query letter is, say, riddled with typos, or if you're pitching a young adult manuscript, but you call it a middle grade because you don't really understand the market, those can be some bad signs for me. Um, and they can be the sorts of things that would make me more likely to move on to the next query in line. Gotcha. So just, I mean, as it is with anything in life, authors should present themselves uh, professionally and let, let you know that, hey, they, they had the skills to back up their claim that this is a book that's worth your time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that sometimes there can be a misconception that your query letter itself ne really needs to stand out or be different um, in the way it's written. So sometimes I'll see authors sending query letters that are written from the point of view of their main character or really sort of super goofy or bizarre. And I, I get the thinking there because you want to stand out. But what I always say is that your work and your concept are going to what make you are going to be what makes you really stand out. Um, and you know, especially uh, when we're talking about like writing a query letter from the point of view of your main character, I always prefer when authors don't do that because I'm going to have a business relationship in theory with that writer, not with like Rodney the Rhino, whoever the main character is, right? So I want to talk to you as the writer rather than your main character. Um, so when I say like present yourself in a professional way, that's all I mean. It doesn't have to be super uh, clinical or super formal, but just remember that, you know, your agent is going to be a business partner and, um, you know, I'm going to know your social security number at some point. Like it can be a, a more sort of professional communication um, and really let your concept do the talking for you. You don't need your query letter itself to be sort of weird or outre because usually agents have seen, you know, we've heard every joke and we've seen every sort of gimmick, you know. I've seen the line, we're going to blow Harry Potter out of the water at least 70 times in my career. So it's like, you know, you want to keep Snickers. it. Pretty I'm the only one that has blown Harry Potter out of the water. The rest I know, are, you are were the only one. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So so I think it's it's keep, keep it clean and concise. Um, and if you get lost, you know, using that X is Y until Z can sort of help help put you on the right course for the rest of the query. And when we're uh, talking about concept, are we talking about just in general what appeals to you personally? Or is it a combination of that plus I know this editor or that editor has mentioned that they're interested in that type of story? I know where the market is for this. What What is it about a concept that speaks to you? Yeah, so um, it depends on a lot of things, but it really is a blend of does it speak to me personally and does it work in the market? And you need both of those things, I think, to represent a project well. Um, you know, I think as an agent, I really need to be personally invested in the story to be a good salesman and advocate for it and also to help edit it. Um, so for instance, you know, I don't do a lot of straight contemporary romance. Um, I have in the past, you know, it's not something I typically take on a lot. And one of the reasons is I don't read a lot of contemporary romance. And so, um, sometimes I'm not sure, you know, what the difference is between like, a really good version of this contemporary romance and an even greater one, because that's not my area of expertise, typically, right? Um, so it's gotta be something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. Then separate from that, it needs to be something that I feel editors are going to get really excited about based on what I know about the market. So on the one hand, it might be, oh, you know, I'm so passionate about this story. So for instance, with Maybe a Mermaid by Josephine Cameron that's coming out from FSG. I read that book. It had a good, strong concept, but more than anything else, I was just in love with the writing. It really moved me. And, and I thought to myself, you know what? 
even if no one buys this, I am representing it, I'm sending it out because I believe in this book. It's just, it's just so beautiful. Um, and the response from editors, I mean, that book went to auction. A lot of editors really connected with it on that personal level. So I think that's, you know, that's why that personal degree of, of enthusiasm absolutely needs to be there um, when you're signing with an agent. You know, you, you really need to know that they get what you're trying to do and, and really appreciate it, that they would be a fan if they weren't your agent already, you know? So I've got, I've got so many questions for you and I, I sent you a list and I'm uh, already checking out half of them because I've got so many follow-ups. Um, but uh, give us kind of just an overview of, of what demystify the literary agent uh, process for us just a little bit. Give us kind of an overview of what is your day like? What is your week like? Sure. Um, okay, so every day or every week is gonna be very, very different. Um, so I'll give you, I'll give you an example of, of, uh, you know, today, which is, which is, I don't know, it's, I guess a pretty typical day. Um, so I open the day by answering my email. So I've usually got about 10 to 20 questions from different clients of mine about stuff that's going on in their career. Um, you know, later today, I'm going to have a phone call with an author discussing the marketing plan that her publisher has sent. So we're gonna go through that together. I'm gonna to make a list of questions that I have for them. We're gonna talk about her questions and that's all preparatory to getting on the phone with her editor and publicist later in the week to talk about the publicity for her book. At the same time, I'm also gonna be reviewing a client's manuscript for submission. So we're very close to being ready to go out. I'm gonna go in, maybe do a final you know, line edits, make some comments and track changes, send that back to the author before we finally put together the full submission package to go on submission probably next week. Um, in addition to that, I'll have a phone call with a colleague of mine about a project that we're co-agenting that's sort of in the adult and kids space. Um, and, you know, and, and throughout the day, I'll be troubleshooting. Problems come up with every book sort of at every, you know, step of the way. Well, maybe not every book or every step of the way. I'll say that, a pro a, you know, problems occur with every book's journey, right? And that might be the cover is not quite right or... Um, you know, we haven't heard from Barnes and Noble about what they're ordering in or, um, you know, the, the description on Goodreads is, is wrong or whatnot. So there are these little quibbles, things that are, are, are mistakes or errors or, or, or problems that need to be solved. Um, and you're getting involved even on that, on that micro level of things then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, with something like, uh, oh, there's a problem with the, with the Goodreads, um, description, you know, that's something that I would talk to the author about. We would loop in the editor, you know, there's ways that the author can adjust that. So I don't mean to suggest that like I'm going in and writing the Goodreads uh, synopses for, for my clients' books, but if there's an issue, I'm gonna be there to help navigate our way to finding the solution. That makes sense. And I wondered, it's something that uh, is not unique to you because I think uh, most people, uh, that are involved in publishing uh, or, or books in, in some level um, are at the very least fans of writing, if not wanting to do some writing themselves. And you're actually a published author. You've got uh, two what two books available right now? Yeah, I do. Um, they they uh, I I published two young adult novels with um, Candlewick Press. The first one was called Girl Parts, and the second one is uh, Cherry Money Baby. Um, I always say that Cherry Money Baby is the better one, despite the fact that there's no robots in it, but that's just my personal opinion. You could feel very differently. Um, yeah, I, um, I always sort of wanted to be a writer from, from a young age, and I moved to New York looking for a job to sort of support my, my writing habit. Um, you know, agenting is my main passion. It's what I do. It's what sort of occupies my days and my thoughts. 
Um, but I love to be a creative person and I love to, to write and to think about writing. Um, so that's still part of something that I do. And actually I can sort of give you a, a little bit of an exclusive, I can give you a little bit of details that uh, I'm gonna get to announce. Um, another book of mine is gonna be coming out pretty soon and we're gonna be able to talk about that on the internet pretty soon. But uh, yeah, I will have something new coming out uh, shortly. Well, congratulations, big time, uh, big time excitement over that. What uh, can you give us? kind of a time frame on when we might be looking forward to seeing it? I think that um, we'll be able to make an announcement sometime in the next month. Um, so it's one of these things where it's like the deal is done and we negotiate the contract and sort of cross all the T's before we make a big announcement to the to the world publicly. Um, but my clients know and whatnot and, um, you know, so it's not a, not a super secret, but it is gonna be in the middle grade space. I'm actually writing something younger this time around. Um, and, and that's really, really fun and, and something that's really close to my heart. So, uh, I'm very excited to be able to talk about it soon. Not quite today, but very soon. So can you uh, give us the title and maybe read the first chapter? Uh, <laughs> I would love to come back and do that, but I can't do it today. <laughs> Absolutely. Send me a copy of the art, come back and, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it at length when you can. Absolutely, man. Well, that's exciting because that's got to give you a little bit more insight than the average agent into what the what your authors are experiencing and, and what what this what this process is like for them. Uh, so, how how does that it, uh, inform your work as a literary agent? Also, how do you strike a balance between being an author and a literary agent? Sure. So, um, you know, I think every agent comes to the job with a slightly unique philosophy or, or point of view. Um, and I sort of, I, I come to it with, with I mean, well, this is where the, the title of the YouTube series came from. You know, I often am saying to writers like, well, okay, now I'm gonna talk to you with my agent brain on, or now I'm gonna talk to you with my writer hat, uh, you know, my writer brain on. Um, and really it's, um, you know, being a published author involves two distinct but complementary ways of thinking. One is the pure creative side. How do I tell the best story possible? And that's all the craft stuff. Right. Um, and I'm a very editorial agent, so I'm going through with my clients, helping them shape their stories and giving edits and notes, talking about character development, all of that stuff. Um, and then sort of separate from but complementary to that is the the market. Right. Um, you know, what's selling right now? What are editors looking for? What are um, kids looking for when they pick up books off the shelf? What kind of covers sell? Um, you know, what kind of flow through should you have in your contract? All the kind of business. And um, so I try to bring both of those philosophies to my work when I'm talking to my clients, because I think that as writers, we can get editorial feedback that we really like, but not necessarily know how to process it or how to apply it immediately. Um, and so what I try to do is um, phrase my editorial feedback for my clients and the people I do critiques with um, in a way that sort of helps them wrap their mind around it in the most efficient way possible. Um, so rather than saying, you know, uh, I just wasn't excited enough about this story or um, the stakes aren't high enough in this story, you know, I might dial it in, you know, with an author and say like, okay, you know, I've noticed the stakes aren't high enough in this story. Um, what that suggests to me is that, you know, maybe you don't want to have really bad things happen to your characters. So let's talk about why that is. And then, you know, we find out it's like, well, I'm really trying to write a realistic story. So I don't want to have the drama be unrealistic. Okay, but no drama means no story. So we want to pump it up a little bit more than you think is natural. So it reads well. And these are the kinds of conversations we're having to get the author to where they need to be on their work. So that's kind of how I bring my, my writer brain into, um, 
into that space. And you know, it is one of the reasons I continue to to write myself. It's sort of I need to keep thinking about writing from the the writer's point of view, and I need to keep thinking about it from a, um, a creative, you know, generating creative material point of view, in order to be the best agent I can be. Um, now, I'm not saying you have to be a writer to be a good agent by any stretch, but that's how it works for me. So I like to have those those kind of balancing each other out that way. Well, I know we uh, talked with uh, Amy Tipton just an episode or so ago, uh, and she's now exclusively offering editorial services because she determined that that was really her favorite part of being a literary agent, um, was less the business aspect and, and more um, uh, focusing on working with authors and doing that. And I would assume, well, let me ask you this. Um, I have uh, been writing reviews at, at Middle Grade Ninja uh, for years now, mm -hmm. uh, and I had to very early on make it my policy that I only discuss the positive aspects of a book. I only discuss the things that I like because when I'm in like, critique groups uh, with my writer's friends, I've got a couple, um, I uh, tend to be a little bit negative. Back before I instituted that review policy, I reviewed, uh, I think it was East of Eden by uh, John Steinbeck, and I had strong <laughs> thoughts on what Mr. Steinbeck could have done to improve that novel. Uh, and after that, I thought, well, that's that that's me. I need to be able to get in there and, and have a strong opinion, even when I'm wrong, uh, which in the case of Mr. Steinbeck, I, I most assuredly probably am. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I need to have a strong feeling, a strong opinion, because that's how I'm going to distinguish myself and create my own stories. Mm -hmm. So when you're my critique, if you're on my blog, oh, you never had a review so nice. Everybody gets five stars because I'm only <laughs> going to talk about the part that the things about the book that I like. But if it's just you and me, uh, if your book's published, I, I have a firm rule. I'm not going to say anything bad about it because even like best case scenario there, even if I told you the one thing that would make that book better, it's published. You can't you can't go back and, and do anything about it. But if it's unpublished and you come to me and you say, hey, I want your opinion, you better really mean that because you're going to get a very sharp, very um, um uh, a very sharp critique uh, that's that's going to try and uh, and imagine all of the uh, bad reactions that readers might have later. And I'm going to try and avoid you from hearing about it for the first time in a one-star Amazon review. I want you to know about it now. So being an author, which, which side of that spectrum do you come back when you're critiquing? Do you tend to be a little bit softer because you know how much critiquing can hurt? Do you temper your approach because of things that have happened to you? Or are you meaner than you would be because you expect the best things from your authors? Um, that's a really good question. I think um, I I come at my my editorial critiques uh, knowing that even the most innocuous critique can be emotionally painful to a writer. Right? I know that we take them really personally, and we could talk for hours about why that is. I have a lot of thoughts, um, but you know that that it's a very personal thing. So I always try to phrase my critiques in a way that is um, with a spoonful of sugar. You know, it's not, uh, I'm not trying to put a, a sunshiny face on it, but I think that you can say, um, you know, there's a difference between saying, I hate this character or this plot thread goes nowhere versus I'm having a hard time connecting with this character or I'm not sure that this plot is really and you know f ending in a satisfying way. So first of all I think you know I try to be conscious of the language that I use because you know those things are you know I'm not connecting with this character and this character is annoying might be equally true but if I say I'm not connecting with this character you know I know that that is a more constructive way to put it. So that's that's one part of the philosophy. The other part is um, 
I really want to work with the writers who are really committed to being the absolute best they can be. You know, I love those writers who are just so hungry for the feedback and so hungry to jump back in. That doesn't mean that they don't take a minute to be like, okay, wow, that's, I got to process this, or I'm not quite sure, you know, how I'm going to tackle this revision. But like after beat, after a moment to sort of internalize, I really want, you know, my, my authors to be enthusiastic about getting better and to understand that the only way you get better is by working and rewriting and revising. Um, you know, that's a standard I try to hold myself to. And I think that that's how you become the best writer you can be. So on the one hand, my, my expectations are, are sky high in terms of um, the amount of, you know, sort of perfectionism and attention to detail and thoroughness in, in the work. Um, but at the same time, you know, I want to get there by feeling and being a, a, a back and forth and and a, and a convivial and, and creative collaboration rather than, you know, sort of me passing down judgments to writers. So I think it's a, it's a question of, of tone and approach, um, but also, you know, not holding anything back. You know, if there's a problem there, I'm going to, I'm going to let you know about it because I want you to trust me as your agent that I'm not going to send you out into the world with your fly down, you know? But it's very much a uh, collaboration as opposed to I, John Cusack, declare what is right and what is wrong with this with this novel. Well, I think that um, my job is to help you write the best version of your book, right? So I never want. I'm 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 often saying to my writers like, you need to follow your muse, and I want you to tell me if anything I'm saying feels contradictory to what you're trying to do with this book, because sometimes I've missed or maybe. The author hasn't communicated what the main point of their book is. So I might say, like, you know, I don't think the mother character is really working. Do we need her? And I haven't realized that, like, in the writer's mind, this book is all about mom, right? And so if the writer tells me, like, no, 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 John, you're totally wrong. This book is all about mom. I'll say, okay, great. Let's make it all about mom. Right now on the page, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with mom. So, like, how can we get there, right? That's what you want to do. So let's find our way through. Um, and then do you suggest uh, specific steps the author can take to revise for that? Or do you wait for the author to, to see the light and come up with one on their own or a combination thereof? I usually do throw out suggestions. Um, and they're always just suggestions. I know some writers, and I think it, it's possible uh, Mary Cole has said this in the past, um, that she just asks questions, that she doesn't make suggestions. And if, I'm, and if that's not Mary, I apologize, Mary. But someone has said that to me before. And I think that's totally legitimate. I think that's a really interesting and, and legitimate way to edit. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit more uh, bold or crass, if you want to call it that. Like, I'll throw out some suggestions, but I always say, like, you know, here's, here are some ways I think you might be able to approach this, um, or, or what if you tried it that way? But I'm always ready for the author to say, that's not how I want to do it, or, you know, oh, I see that that problem is there, um, but I'm going to solve it a different way. And I think that it's really important for writers to remember when they're working with agents and editors that, if your agent and editor, you know, brings you uh, a concern with the book, their suggestion for how to solve it might not be the way you want to do it. And that's fine. But you should take that concern seriously. Like there is an issue with your book that needs to be resolved. So how you want to do it is up to you. Um, but it does require some more some more work or, or attention on your part. So how does that relationship change then once you've got a uh, publisher uh, on the line? 
who's going to be taking the financial risk on the book. Um, how much uh, can you advocate in that situation of the publisher? You know, one of the horror stories I always throw out there is I know of an author that had written a uh, novel that was Christian romance at the same time that Fifty Shades of Grey had come out and was, was very popular. And yeah. her plan was to go through the church network that she had lined up for herself to go and speak and promote the book. Uh, and the publisher said, well, you know, what's really popular is this BDSM stuff. Uh, let's put that in there. Uh, and that was kind of going to screw our entire uh, promotion plan. So when you get a um, uh, suggestion, shall we call it, uh, from a publisher, how much leeway do you have? How much leeway does the author have to not follow that, considering they've got the money? Um, I think that that example is a great one, but it's also pretty extreme. Uh, like, that's a real problem, right? If you're, you're writing a Christian romance novel and, and your editor suggests that you should... Um, put stuff in there that you don't feel is Christian, let's say, or, or that you feel is contradictory to the, to the message or the tone that you're trying to write. Um, that's an issue. And in that situation, what I would want the author to do is to come to me as their agent before anybody else. And in fact, I, I would say this is a blanket piece of advice. If, you, if you've got a problem as a writer, first thing, tell your agent and then make whatever the next steps are. And that includes, you know, problems with people online or problems with your editor or problems with a review, whatever it is. Um, so I think that I would want them to come to me first and then I would get on the phone with the editor and I would say, you know, Bob, Stacy, Kate, whatever the editor's name is. Um, here's the thing. This feels really sort of off kilter for this book. And, and it, you know, I would say, I understand where you're coming from. Like there's an opportunity here to maybe capitalize on some 50 shades of gray, you know, energy, but it feels like it's the wrong brand for this author. And, and I feel like she's really not, this is not the space that she wants to be in. It would probably be a mistake to go in, in that direction. So, so, so what do you think? I mean, are you feeling me that this isn't quite right for this book, that it would, it would probably um, undermine its effectiveness rather than really boosting it because the author is not going to be totally on board and it's not going to feel organic. And, and so that's the kind of conversation I would have with the editor. Um, if the editor is saying, it has to have this, then you've got a situation where maybe you cancel that contract or maybe that happens a few steps down the line because there's a real fundamental disconnect between um, the author's vision for the book and the editor's vision for the book. That said, in most cases, I think that you can kind of get a sense of what the editor's vision for the book is before, um, before you go to the, to, to the book deal. Usually you have that opportunity. It doesn't always happen. You know, today I have an author who um, has some interest in her book. There are editors who, who are thinking of acquiring it. Um, you know, we're hopefully going to close later in the week. And she's going to spend her week on the phone with editors, talking to them, just getting a feel for what they want to do with the book. You don't always have that opportunity. She's in a competitive situation where there's lots of interest. So that's um, something that we can afford to do. Uh, but you know, for the most part, the hope is that you get a sense from your editor ahead of time what where they see the book in the market. You know, um, and I think that the same applies to agents. You know, let's say you're you're uh, you've got an offer from an agent and you want to get on the phone and talk to them before you accept it, or maybe they say, "Hey, let's get on the phone," and while you're on the phone, they they offer you representation. Um, I think it's really important to talk to that agent and make sure that you not only have similar editorial visions for the book. Um, but also that you have similar communication styles, that, you know, you have similar expectations. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you're on the same page with that person. So as much as possible, you can avoid those conflicts coming up after it's not quite too late, but, you know, after it's really, uh, 
uh, the problem has become much more complicated because of where you are in the publishing process. Well, now that uh, brings me to mind right away that uh, assuming that somebody's watching this or listening to this and they're not already sold as they should be, uh, because listen to the advocate you are for your authors, they should be sending you a query. I don't want to send you a query. <laughs> you sound like the guy. Um, but uh, assuming that someone is thinking of also sending to another literary agent crazy, but just on the off chance you reject them and they want to they pick out somebody else. Uh, what would you say is the best way for authors to evaluate literary agents that they might consider working with? And what sort of things should they be watching out for? Okay, so let's say um, you've done your research and uh, you know that the agents you're querying represent your kind of stuff and, and, and whatnot. Um, I think there are a few things to, to be aware of. First of all is, uh, are they an editorial agent and is that what you're looking for? Not all authors are looking for an editorial agent. In fact, I have authors on my list, even though I'm a very editorial agent, who don't really want to do that. You know what I mean? Like they're a few books into their career and really they're mostly working with their editors and I'm not doing a ton of editorial work with them and that's totally fine. Um, but if you really want that and the agent who's offering doesn't really do editorial stuff, um, that's an important thing to establish. And, and, uh, and so you can talk to the agent ahead of time about what kind of agent they are. I think it's important too to set up expectations when it comes to communication. So my philosophy, you know, to, to an extent is that I work for my clients. So their preferred communication style, I try to cop to that. I have some people who love to jump on the phone. I have some people who hate to be on the phone. Um, I have some folks who like to text. I have some folks who never text. Um, you know, for me, the mo for the most part, what I say to authors when I'm offering representation is that, uh, 99.9% .9 of the time I respond to emails, you know, within the hour, within the same day. I can't always pick up the phone when you call, but I can usually schedule a phone call either for later that day or the next day. And that's my communication style. That's the expectations I want clients to go forward with. You know, I'll let them know that like it usually takes me a week to read and write an edit letter for a manuscript, but usually there's like three manuscripts ahead of you in line. So I try to establish this is what you can expect and to make sure that that feels right to them. Um, you know, because that same author, if we hadn't had that uh, conversation, might expect me to, um, you know, pick up the phone every time they call. And uh, if I didn't do that, they might get upset. But if we establish that beforehand, they might think to themselves, oh, John's not ignoring me. This is just his, you know, his work schedule. Um, you know, he takes meetings during the day, so he might not be able to pick up the phone. And what could have been a conflict is avoided because you kind of set this stuff up at the outset of your relationship. That makes sense. And while we're talking about that, let's demystify a little bit of author etiquette. Um, obviously, if somebody uh, takes the ingenuity to to stalk you and and find your your home address and send you things there along with a personalized gift, I assume that's rewarded with great gratitude from you, right? Yeah. So not not so much. I uh, you know my. Um, Every agent submission guidelines or nearly every agent submission guidelines are available online. And most of them have them either on their website or on a site like Publishers Marketplace. So for me, if you go to foliojunior.com and click on my name, there's a little thing, link that says submission guidelines. It takes you directly to what I'm looking for and how to submit to me. That takes two minutes for an author to do. So when I get a query that hasn't followed those submission guidelines, I immediately ignore it because of the you know 50 people who queried me that week, they all were able to do their due diligence and do their research and care enough to know that like I like 
the first 2,500 words pasted into the email, or you know that I don't really uh, take on um, text-only picture book authors, or that I don't do adult material, right? So um, that research is is really important, and you want to follow the the agent's guidelines. Um, you know, beyond that, for for author etiquette, I think that the perhaps the the most confusing space for this kind of thing can be Twitter, because it's a very informal space. Agents are often talking with authors. I'm often talking to um, authors that I don't represent or don't yet represent. You know, writers who are looking for agents online. Um, it can be very conversational. I post a lot of really stupid inane stuff on Twitter, and I also post, um, you know. Uh, our YouTube videos and, and thoughts on writing and how to find an agent and whatnot. And um, what's your uh, Twitter handle for folks that want to follow you right now? Sure. So uh, my Twitter handle is at John M. Cusick. So M is my middle initial as in Michael. So it's just John M. Cusick. And that's all. And I'm at MG Ninja. Follow us both. We'll all have great conversations. Yeah. Um, I think that the one thing authors should know about Twitter, at least for me, and I think this is true for most agents, is you don't want to pitch an agent on Twitter. Um, just like you probably wouldn't want to ask someone out on a date in the middle of a group conversation, right? It's like, this is about a one-on-one -on -one thing between me and you. Like, I don't want to turn you down in public. Um, and if this is something I really want, I don't want all of my agent colleagues to know that I'm really into it. Like, query me properly, and we'll talk about it via email or via phone. Um, but pitching on Twitter really is not the place to do it. And, and the same is true for like messaging or messaging on Facebook or whatnot. Um, I have a policy you know, on Facebook. I, I don't accept friend requests from people I've never met in person. It's just not, you know, Facebook isn't a professional space for me the way that Twitter is. Um, so I think that, you know, etiquette wise, uh, you can't go wrong looking up the agent submission guidelines and following them. You know, I, I think that's honestly the shortest distance between uh, zero and and finding yourself, you know, represented by someone great. That makes sense. And then, uh, what about once an author uh, has signed with a literary agent? Um, obviously, you you already got the incredible um, policy that if somebody wants to have a phone call with you, you'll schedule a phone call. Um, but how often should an author be contacting their literary agent without feeling like they're making a pest of themselves? Obviously, uh, you're very busy with all with your entire client list plus your own books plus everything else that you've got going on. Yeah. How often is an author contacting you? That's too often. And what sort of things are really trivial? And if the author had you know you don't want to respond to an author, but let me Google that for you. You know go out there and maybe find some of that information yourself authors um, so what where is that line and have authors crossed it and if so how boy that's a really good question um, I think I think an important thing to keep in mind I, I really what it comes down to uh, is not so much a question of like some oblique professional etiquette where it's like everybody knows that you can only email your agent once a day I think it depends on on the scenario and really comes down to using some common sense and and if you're worried about you know annoying your agent um, just some conscientiousness so usually I'm telling my clients that they can email me more than they do so my, my authors are, are, are often saying things like well I didn't want to trouble you with this or like I'm sorry to bother you with this and I say that I am I exist to be bothered it's my whole job like come to me with issues I'm a problem solver that's what we do um, you heard it here, authors. I don't have it. Like, oh, gee, please. I know I shouldn't even say that, but it's true. Like, you know, if there's a, if there's a problem that that you can't solve on your own, or you're not sure how to solve, or you're worried about, 
let me know. And um, because sometimes it's not really a problem. I think this is the thing. I would say at least a third of the uh, you know concerns I get um, from editors or, or authors will be something that um, you know, John. I'm a little bit worried about X, Y, or Z. What do you think about that? And I'm able to either you know because of just what I know or because of some research I can do, come back and say like, ah, I can see why you're worried, but you shouldn't be because this reason. And it's just because you didn't know X, Y, or Z, right? So oftentimes problems can be resolved fairly quickly and the authors are really glad they email because it's like, oh great, I don't have to worry about that. That's not what I thought it was, et cetera. Um, you know, there's definitely a, a point at which you can be pestering your, your agent. I think, you know, um, and this is the same goes true for queriers. I, I think it's it's not a great idea to ask anyone a question that you could have answered yourself with Google. You know what I mean? I will say a small pet peeve of mine is when authors, you know, will write to me on Twitter and say, you know, do you accept YA novels or are you looking for YA novels? And I kind of feel like, come on, man, like Is your you, name John Cusick? Yeah, like well, yeah, yeah, right. But you can just Google that. You know, it's so clear. It's in my Twitter bio. Right. So um, it, that sometimes feels a little bit disingenuous to me because I feel like it's a way where it's like I'm just trying to start a conversation with the agent. But you're kind of making me work for it when really you're trying to get something from me, which is some some attention and maybe a connection. So when you query me, I'll remember you. Um, so don't ask questions that you already know the answers to or you can find out, you know, with a little bit of research on your own. Um, I think, now, obviously, okay, anybody it, that's watching or listening to this is already above and beyond. They're not. They're not going to pull this. Right. Of course. <laughs> um, I think. I think here's the thing. Um, as an author working with an agent or an editor, and and this is my philosophy when I'm writing to an editor, um, I give everyone the benefit of the doubt. If it seems like someone has done something, you know, totally wrong or unethical or dumb or, or that I totally disagree with, if something seems like you know I'm just ready to pull my hair out. I write to the person, you know, who, who's the person I need to write to, and I say, hey, um, maybe I'm totally misreading this, but this is concerning to me. You know, it kind of looks like X, Y, and Z. Can we talk about it? Or what do you think? Um, and a lot of the time, it's not what I thought it was. It's not what it looked like. You know, the, a lot of the time, there is a good answer. And I think where writers can get into trouble with their agents is they can see something or think something is going on um, and not have it quite right and you know sort of explode emotively in an email you know saying like I can't believe this happened and and you know this is a total panic moment and and you know this is a total disaster and you know as an agent I get to write back and say well you know she didn't reply to that email because she had her baby this morning you know what I mean? Like that's right. It can sometimes be like, I just, oh God, I just didn't know. Like she just, you know, I didn't know she was going on maternity leave or I didn't know this happened. Um, so I think it's a good practice in life, in business to, um, to not come off too strong to begin with. Now, when it's time to get mad, I always say, um, you know, getting mad is a tool in my agent's toolbox. I only take it out when it's going to help my author get what they want. Okay, here uh, comes the good stuff. I'm leaning forward now. When do you get mad? Um, I will tell you there there is one thing in in professional life that really ups like <laughs> sort of is a pet peeve of mine and upsets me, um, and that is uh, folks not getting back to you. 
I mean, maybe that's why I try to respond to emails quickly or try to set up those phone calls. We are all busy, but when I can't get back to my author on a project or something's taking too long and I know they're waiting and they've followed up with me, I know, I just, I know that mindset. I know that they're thinking like, oh God, he hates the book or, or, you know, they could be feeling very anxious about not hearing from me. So I always write back and say, I'm sorry, I'm not there yet. I haven't started it yet. Or I'm just, you know, I'm just getting into it. I will get back to you soon. I, I might try to give them a date, but I don't let them sit and stew. Um, and professionally, if there are folks who never get back to you, um, and sort of, and their communication style isn't one in which they feel the need to say like, hey, I just want to give you an update. I still haven't done it yet, but I, I'm here and I care and I care enough to get back to you. People have different communication styles. I don't think everyone who does that is trying to be rude, um, but that makes me not want to work with them because that kind of communication style I don't think is conducive to doing good work together. So that's the kind of place where I will get mad after a certain point where it's just, you know, you if you want to continue to to work on X, Y, or Z, like you need to get back to me in a, in a reasonable time. Um, and is that true with editors or anybody involved with the book process beyond the author as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. And again, what I do, what I try to do in these situations is to give people the benefit of the doubt because stuff comes up in our personal lives. You know, I, you know, I had a last year, 2018 was a very difficult year for, for me personally because of, reasons. Um, and so, you know, I, I felt a little bit like I had to scramble to get back to some stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's totally fair. But again, I'm just talking about my own personal pet peeves, um, you know, where people aren't getting back, uh, even to just say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. Um, I find that to be a little bit rude. So that can be a place where I might exert a little bit more pressure for me personally. Um, but, you know, there are situations in which, um, as an agent, you really have to fight for what your author wants because at the end of the day, um, a publisher is a company and companies can't care about people because they're not people themselves. And um, you know they're out for their bottom line, which is totally fine. But that means that your publisher's uh, needs and the author's needs are you know, synced up 90% of the time, but not always, right? Um, so there might be conflicts that arise and that can be a place where, um, you know, an agent has to put their foot down. But again, my personal philosophy is that, um, there's always a human being on the other side of the phone. Um, you know, they're doing their best usually to, to do their best for the book. Um, so I'm not a, I'm not a shouter. I'm not one of those agents who throws phones secretly. I, I, I almost wish that I was cause there's like a twisted part of me that's like, oh man, that's so... That's so tough. That's so cool. Uh, but in reality, yeah, in reality, it's just I couldn't imagine, um, you know, being rude to somebody like that. Uh, so I, I try to to keep those lines of communication open and to only um, really be be forceful, if you want to call it that, when when it feels absolutely um, necessary and when I feel like the my author and is not being um, respected by whoever the, the person on the other end of the line is. Now, as I'm saying this, the binary is usually like authors on one hand and editors on the other. I don't want it to sound like I'm just talking about editors who don't do their job well. The editors I work with are amazing. Everyone I have a book with, I adore. Um, I, well, I assume that, you're not placing a book with an editor you think is going to be a dirtbag, right? Right. And, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are editors out there who are, but I, I would be hard, I would have to do some digging in my mind to think of, um, 
you know, editors who I think are unscrupulous in the kids space or, or whatnot. Um, you know, so I don't want to make it sound like, oh, this is how you, you fight with an editor. You shouldn't be fighting, period. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, in all stages of the process, conflicts can come up and sometimes you do need to exert a little bit of pressure when the, you know, when the time is right. Well, that brings me right to another question. When uh, you're evaluating editors up front, um, how do you go about that process of selecting editors and matching them with authors? So um, I w first want to know, you know, I'm not going to send uh, a project to an editor uh, who I don't think is going to be a fan of this kind of book, right? So I'm, I'm first of all, I'm thinking about their taste. Um, and when I'm taking into account their taste, it's what they've posted on manuscript wish list and what's on the publisher website, you know, saying this is what I'm looking for. I'm incorporating what they tell me at lunch. I usually am out to lunch with editors once or twice a week, sort of hearing about their list and what they want to see next and whatnot. Um, I'm also trying to assess what they might like, but they don't know they want yet. And and that's just kind of a, I don't know, a sixth sense. You talk to people about, you know, um, you know, their their political feelings. You talk to them about what movies and television shows they like. Are they a cat person, dog person? These are sort of things that inform your sense of their taste and their style and their personality, their sense of humor, whatnot. Um, I'm also thinking about what their imprint is looking for. So for instance, if I have an editor tell me that like, yeah, I'm really open to YA, but I also know that that imprint is really stuffed on YA and, and that publisher has recently said, okay, we really wanna focus on middle grade this year. Maybe that's not the perfect editor for this project. So there's a, a ton of stuff that goes into deciding is this editor a good person to send this project to? Um, you know, but beyond that, I really like, you know, I said I like the editors that I work with. Um, everyone has slightly different styles, but um, really beyond that, it's a question of does the author connect with them? You know, uh, does the author feel like they have a, a good communication style and um, is there a personal connection there? Because you can have, you know, one editor and one author, two of which are wonderful, brilliant human beings, but their styles can just be very different. You know, one has a really salty sense of humor and the other is just, you know, rainbows and sunshine and they just don't gel. Or, or maybe those are their two personalities and they totally do gel and two salty people wouldn't have worked together. I mean, I think it's something that you really have to evaluate on a case by case basis. So I know that's sort of a like all over the place answer, but it's um, there's a lot. No, it makes sense. You mentioned you've got somebody this very week who's going to be uh, chatting with uh, editors uh, to get kind of a sense of what their vision is for for her book. Right. Uh, so in a situation like that, let's say that you're in a good spot where you've got I don't know five different editors all clamoring, we must have this book, and the author feels very strongly that they most connected with an editor, but a different editor they don't have that feeling about is offering double the advance or some some other huge perk. How do you would you evaluate um, that situation? How would you prioritize where to place the book? Okay, so let's say for sake of argument, um, you have multiple editors all offering the exact same thing, basically. Let's say the, the offers are comparable, so it's not really, you're not making your decision based on, you know, who's got the better financial offer. Um, first, I'd look at that editor's list. I feel like I'm giving away some trade secrets here, but that's okay, it's worth it. Um, I'd, look, I'd look at the editor's list and I'd say, um, you know, do they have a lot of projects like this on their list? Too many projects might mean that this book might get lost among a sea of similar projects. Too few might mean that, um, you know, that editor doesn't have a lot of experience with this kind of, of book. Um, so that's a bit of an evaluation, right? Um, 
you might also look at um, like let's say let's say every you know most of the imprints in publishing all had their um, sloth picture book and that year everyone's got to have a sloth picture book right like that's just the big thing um, I might know that this particular editor is still looking for her sloth picture book right like she just doesn't have the thing that is like the big sloth picture book of the year from that imprint so that might be someone I really target because that slot picture book that I'm going out with might be of tremendous value to that editor because it's gonna be you know, her lead title. It's gonna be a big deal for her imprint. Whereas for someone else, they've kind of already got their slot picture book. Yes, they want mine, but now there's gonna be two on the list. It's not as important to them. Um, so that's part of the evaluation as well. The other thing is um, sort of editorial style. So um, I have, there are a number of like editor and author pairs that I work with that I, I really adore, but, but one of my all time favorite pairings is Alessandra Balzer and at Balzer and Bray and Julie Murphy. So that's author, uh, editor and author. Um, those two are like besties and they, you know, as they're talking about their like high level, you know, marketing and editorial stuff, they're exchanging cat pictures and I get copied on all of these emails. So I get to see <laughs> and very important stuff. It just makes my day every time I see it because they're clearly so simpatico, even though I think that they're slightly they're slightly different people. Um, so, you know, in an ideal world, that's really great to have that kind of personal connection with your editor. That's not to say that every editorial relationship needs to be that way. You can have an editor who is just perfect for you and you really jive with professionally, but you guys aren't necessarily best friends. That's totally fine. Um, but I think that, you know, the only way to really establish that for the author is to see, you know, get the two people on the phone and see if they really connect. I try to anticipate that a little bit. You know, if I have an author who I think, you know, really takes editorial comments to heart, like, again, if they're working with me, I know that they can wrap their heads around them and, and get them done. But I also know that like, oh, it takes, you know, author X, you know, uh, a couple of days to weather editorial comments when they come in, like that, that you know, she feels them very deeply. And I happen to know that this editor God bless her, is just blunt as all get out, right? I'll probably let that author know. It's like, okay, if, if we want to go with, you know, editor Y, just know that her edit letters, she really doesn't mince words, okay? So you need to be ready for that. So, so those are some of the things that you can sort of navigate in those relationships as well. These are, you know these things because you're going out to lunch with editors on a regular basis and maintaining and cultivating those relationships to keep your ear to the ground on who's looking for what, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, I'm I'm going out to lunch with editors, but I might also be working with them on on several different projects. So I kind of know their taste, or maybe I've worked with them in the past. You know, we see each other at conferences. Um, so you keep you keep up these relationships with editors because, yeah, I want to know what they're looking for, what they're feeling, what they're excited about, um, and I want to have a good relationship with them. So. You know, if we are working together and there is a conflict, I know how they work. I know how to communicate and resolve that with them, you know. That makes sense. And then um, you mentioned Julie Murphy. We should uh, can't can't do this whole interview and not at least talk a little bit about Dumplin. Uh, that's got to be just a heck of a thing to have a book take off like that become, I think, a, a pre-classic, if not already a classic of the, of the oh, YA like genre uh, and also now a Netflix movie. So are you texting on a regular basis uh, with Jennifer Aniston? <laughs> uh, how has uh, your life changed as a result of this? Or is it really just a question of I'm glad this worked out? for this author, but I love all my authors the same. Um, well, so I'm definitely not not 
texting with Jennifer Aniston. Um, I, I, uh, it's, I don't know that again, that's a good question. Boy, you really make me think, you know, <laughs> why you gotta make me think so hard. Um, it definitely changes, changes your, your life. I think when something is, is that big of a hit and, and I would say, you know, um, Julie and I definitely email every day, right? Because there's always something going on in her career that, that we're both working on, um, together. Um, Dumplin and, and Julie, uh, you know, on a personal note, really share a special, uh, have a special place in my heart because um, my my wife, Molly, and I met because of Julie Murphy. This was long before we, we got together, um, but we actually both offered on her first book, uh, which is Side Effects May Vary. And, um, and Molly won. Molly got Julie to begin with. And, uh, and, and I didn't know who, who Molly Jaffa was at the time. And I thought, who is this agent who's younger than me and scooped this great book that I was so excited about? And I just felt nothing but, but loathing and envy for a long time. Um, and then, you know, Molly and I met again through, through, you know, uh, mutual friends and, and at professional parties and whatnot. Um, and eventually we, we became close. We started dating and, and, and we got married, um, and started working at the same, at the same agency. Um, Molly had been at Folio for many, many years, uh, when I joined and, um, eventually Molly made the decision to leave agenting and go into literary scouting. So, um, there was the option for her authors to go anywhere they wanted. They could go to another agency. Um, and I'm happy to say that, uh, you know, that the majority of them stayed, stayed with me. Um, but, you know, Julie is, you know, when, when uh, there was the big um, red carpet premiere in, in Hollywood for Dumplin', you know, Molly and I went together, you know, she set up that deal uh, for the movie and, and I sort of took it over after she left the agency. So, so <laughs> uh, Julie's in a special place because she was really instrumental to, to my marriage, which I can't say about every book I work on. Um, so that's kind of a special thing. Uh, for us, so so not only is this book, you know, so important um, and such a positive, beautiful message, um, and you know, not only did it has it reached such great such great success, but then on the personal level, it's also this special thing between um, between Molly and I, which is nice. So yeah, so for a number of reasons, that's a that was a really exciting thing to have that movie come out. And uh, for those who don't know Molly, uh, before she was Molly Kusick, was Molly Jaffa, and she also faced the seven questions at middlegradeninja.com. I was hoping that was how you guys met, but no, sounds like it was uh, <laughs> it was Julie. Um, so we have a couple of questions on the back of that. One, I, I have to make sure, uh, Julie, if you're listening to this, you are welcome to come on the uh, podcast anytime. I would love to chat with you. I'll pitch you my brilliant idea for Dumplin' too. I'm calling it Dumplinado, uh, Willadine. <laughs> Gains the powers of a tornado. It's going to be very exciting. Um, so, so email me. Uh, we'll we'll set that up. Uh, but then, with uh, with your being married to an agent, um, if if I'm an author and I'm coming to you, I'm, am I right to maybe think that hopefully I'm getting two agents for the price of one? That Molly's maybe going to weigh in on some of these things. You know, I I'd be lying if I said there there isn't. Uh, an amount of that, you know, um, like, like any couple, we talk about our, our jobs and we talk about work and, um, you know, uh, Molly, uh, her agenting brain is one that I, I admire, um, so much and our brains are very complimentary in that way. So, um, I oftentimes ask her for, for feedback and what she would do in different situations. And we talk about different things, you know, whatever the sort of hot gossip is in publishing at the moment. Um, 
but <laughs> I don't want to promise anyone they're getting two agents for the price of one. Uh, that's maybe putting it a little bit strong, but she um, she is definitely a, a brain that that works in concert with mine, um, and her her publishing expertise is invaluable. So maybe confidentially, there is a little bit of a bonus if you sign with me. I'm not going to lie. It's a pretty enticing offer. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, just for, for folks that are unfamiliar, what is the difference between a literary scout and a literary agent? Sure. So um, uh, literary scouting is completely different from, from agenting. Um, basically, and, and, and Molly would be able to describe this better for you, but uh, basically a literary scouts uh, work for um, publishers. They usually work for uh, foreign publishers. And what they're doing is um, scouting, basically, uh, you know, the U.S. publishing market for books that are just about to be sold or have just sold. Um, that their publishing clients would really like to buy. So basically, they're bringing, they're saying, here's the hot new property. Like, um, you know, all right, just talk to John about this book that he's going out with. Like, I think it's going to be really big. Like, you should probably make an offer on it. You know, I read it. Here's what I think. So they're kind of, you know, um, also an advantage of signing up with uh, John Cusick. It sounds like that's true. That's true. Um, so you know that they're kind of like. Uh, searching through the waters of, of you know, agent inboxes and, and, and what agents are going out with and what editors are reading to see what is the next hot new thing. Um, and, uh, you know, trying to convey it to their clients as quickly as possible so their clients have a head start and can buy up that awesome new project before anyone else gets a chance to scoop it. So how fast uh, do you and Molly read since you're dealing with so many projects? Um, yeah, it's a pretty straightforward question. How fast do you read? I read incredibly slowly. Um, not not only am I like half blind and slightly dyslexic, I'm just a very, very slow, slow, ponderous reader. Um, you know, I'm like one of those guys who like mouths the words to himself as he reads. Um, Molly is the fastest reader I've ever met. So she's she's the speedy one, but um, for the most part, I'm very, very slow. And, and, and uh, but the good news is, is that when I'm reading these days, I'm almost always editing. Right. So, um, you know, when 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 Molly reads for scouting, she's reading a book and then she's writing a report about it. She's ne she needs to come to it as a reader. Right. How do I experience this book? Is this going to excite readers? Um, when I'm reading a book at, in my agenting capacity, I'm usually reading to edit. So I'm going very slowly making notes as I go, sometimes making notes on my Kindle fire, which is awful and takes forever. Um, so. Um, it's a nice very, plug for Kindle. I'm sure we'll work it for you. Not, Kindle yeah. <laughs> Maybe the other versions of the Kindle are great. That Kindle Fire cost me 99 bucks, and that's pretty much what it's worth. Um, so yeah, so I read very slowly, but usually because I'm I'm going very slowly and 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 editing. Um, there is a, a a book by Kate Atkinson um, on my shelf right now that I bought for pleasure to read in December. It's about 300 pages long, and I'm maybe about 100 pages into it right now. So that's, in terms of reading for pleasure, that's pretty much my my speed. I have learned to read something in the opposite genre of what I'm writing. So right now, I've been reading romance novels uh, at the end of the day or right before I start uh, yep. my day, uh, because those I can't read very fast. If I'm reading anything that's similar, uh, I've gone back and I'm relisting the Harry Potter for I don't know how many, the however many time on audio, because yeah. that's nice deliberate pace and I can say, ah, JK Rowling, why am I not you? Why will I never be you? You're so great. Um, but reading something that I don't write kind of removes that problem that at least I have when I come to reading something after a long day of working on my own book or uh, critiquing a friend's book to where that pressure's off. I can just read and experience it as fast as I possibly can. See, that's really interesting because I tend to 
read stuff that's very similar to whatever it is I'm trying to write at the moment to like get myself in the headspace for that. But one of the biggest criticisms I would level on my own writing is that my influences show through too much. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I can kind of see like, oh yeah, like there's a little bit of, uh, you know, whoever I was reading that month, I know that that's in there. Um, so well, I, have I have that same problem. I have not found a solution for it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, was gonna say, well, I like your idea of, of trying to read, you know, sort of purposefully stretching your brain away from what you're working on in the moment. That that sounds smart. I want to start trying that more. Let me, I've got a few questions I absolutely have to ask you or people will wonder what, what, what I even did with this time. <laughs> uh, one question I have to ask is about uh, the rise of indie publishing, self-publishing. Um, with the access now that everybody has to the entire world, mm -hmm. um, I teach a class on the basics of self-publishing. I usually open with, if we wanted to, we would never want to, but if we wanted to, we could have a book available in every country in the world by the end of the class. We could do it that fast. What are the advantages for those thinking, should I go through the um, often wearying process of querying agents and getting rejected and uh, and, and experiencing an, uh, a level of pain again, I can only think to maybe actors who are going out and auditioning for things and, and being rejected on a regular basis. Yeah. What are the arguments for why traditional publishing, especially for middle grade and young adult, is still the way to go? Um, well, I think first and foremost, it really depends on what you want as a writer, right? So traditional publishing and self-publishing offer different things to the writer. And I think it really depends on um, what are you trying to pursue? Um, this is what I'll say uh, traditional publishing can offer. Um, first of all is uh, distribution to physical bookstores in a really efficient way. So one of the things I uh, sometimes have heard folks say about self-publishing their book is that I only want, you know, it, it's, well, the, the publisher's not really going to do anything because I can just put it on Amazon. And the thing that, you know, publishers do have are sales reps and they're in constant communication with, you know, Barnes and Noble and Powell's books and Books of Wonder, little stores, big stores, Target, and they're working to try and get your book into those stores. Um, sometimes for certain books, you want them to work a little harder to do that. However, that is their job and that's what they do. Um, so, you know, being able to have your book come out on the same day and be on bookshelves in all these different stores across the country is something that a publisher can do. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, the other thing is um, having editorial expertise that is primarily geared toward making your book accessible to readers. And I think that that's really a particular thing and invaluable. And that's something that agents and editors offer more so than say, um, a critique group or uh, a writing professor. So my experience was I was an English major. I had the world's most amazing writing professor, Kit Reed, who's now sadly no longer with us. Um, and she taught me so much about writing. And her brain was 100% writer brain. It was the most writer brain brain I've, I've ever met. Um, and it was really, really fantastic. But it was only it only got me halfway to where I needed to be. Um, it was working with Scott Trammell and him helping me understand what writing for an audience means and writing, uh, you know, sort of scene by scene to convey different ideas, to be thinking about, you know, trends and genre and what's going to appeal to my reader. 
um, he was pure agent brain, or he was like agent brain infected with some writing brain. Um, that really felt like the other half of the puzzle to me as a, as a writer. Um, and I think that having that kind of editorial feedback is really valuable to writers who may have so far only gotten critiqued by other writers or by folks in a more academic setting. So I think that's valuable. Um, you know, it can be definitely said that um, uh, publish, you know, I've, I've heard it said, well, publishers don't really do a lot of marketing and publicity. And I think that that's uh, a completely different conversation. Publishers do do a ton of, of marketing and publicity. I think because there are so many titles on their list, sometimes authors feel correctly that their book didn't get as much attention as, say, someone else's. And that's a bummer. So getting a publishing deal is by no means a guarantee that you're going to get a huge publicity push from your publisher. Um, but if you do have them behind you, if it is, you know, a title that they're really getting behind, that kind of stuff can be invaluable, right? Um, so Put it on the back of that, if I'm a really savvy writer uh, and I came to John Cusack to get the, the great representation that I need, what uh, do you do up front to ensure that that publicity is gonna be there for my book? Sure, so, um, so agents aren't publicists. But what I do do is um, I work to make sure that the publisher is doing the most they possibly can and that nothing slips through the cracks. So publicizing a book is a big job. And unlike your relationship with your editor, there's gonna be a whole team of people who are working on your book there. So you're gonna have, uh, say, your editor and then someone who's you know in charge of publicity. There might be, <clears throat> excuse me, a separate person for school and library marketing. There might be a person just for marketing, ad sales. So there can be all these different players in the room when we're talking about just publicizing your book, right? So because of that, stuff can slip through the cracks and it can be great to have an agent on side to kind of keep track of it all. So um, for instance, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm gonna be having a phone call with an author to discuss her publicity plan. That publicity plan, is looking pretty good, but there are gaps in it. You know, there are things I want, there are questions that I need answers to as an agent. So on a publicity plan, it might say, <coughs> you know, uh, you know, a video featuring your title that's going to appear on, you know, these websites or that will appear online. So I would want some more specific information there. Like when you say a video that features this title, is this a book, is this a video about this book? Or is it a video about the publisher and this book is going to like kind of fly by the screen at some point, right? Those are important details, right? That makes a second cameo and then back to the publisher. Exactly, exactly. Um, so um, I'm making sure that I'm answering those questions with the author and the publisher. Um, I'm making sure that, uh, you know, let's say the author um, promised a particular bookseller or writer friend who might blurb the book a copy of the book. I've had it happen that the author says, okay, yeah, I'll get you a copy of the book. They write to the publisher. The publisher says, absolutely, we'll send a copy out. Six months later, the copy never went anywhere. It happens. Mistakes happen. It's not the end of the world. But it helps to have uh, someone there to say, like, hey, uh, did that go out? You know, just to kind of as, as a check. And you know what? By the same token, I appreciate having those checks, too. You know, I, I today had uh, one of my authors text me to be like, oh, hey, John, this email you just sent me, I think you're wrong about X. And she was totally right. And I'm glad that she was there. Um, I'm happy to say that that doesn't happen very often, but, you know, I'm human too. So um, I think having that uh, 
person to sort of be the stage manager a little bit of, of your career is really important. And I think that's one of the ways in which agents help with publicity. Um, you know, beyond that, when I'm negotiating a deal, um, especially a competitive one, we might talk ahead of time about what the pub plan is for the book, what kind of publicity the publisher envisions. Um, and also, you know, I'm there to help the author figure out how to work with their publisher on publicity. A lot of authors don't know what their role should be in publicizing their own book. Um, you know, some writers think, you know, they come to it feeling like, okay, well, the publisher is going to publicize the book. I'm just going to sit back and wait for them to tell me what to do. That's not a good idea. You want to take a much more pre proactive role for a number of reasons. So well, 30 help days later, oh, is that the money truck? Oh, I, know, <laughs> but I was waiting for it. Right, exactly. Um, so so what, uh, yeah. what, what is expected of an author in marketing their book? What do you expect of your authors? Well, I'll tell, um, I'll tell, I'll say what I, I tell most of my authors or all my authors when we're talking about book publicity. And that is that um, the most successful authors think of themselves as the stage manager of their book's publicity. So in other words, they're working with their publisher. They're not waiting for their publisher to do it all, right? They have their own plans and strategies that they're going to put into effect. So, um, you know, a couple of basic things that most publishers will do for a book is make sure that it's out to all the trade reviews, okay? So you don't need to be sending your book to Kirkus. Um, they're going to make sure that um, the book is on sale on time, on its, on its publishing date, and that the covers look right where they are. Again, mistakes happen and we fix them. Um, you know, they're going to make sure that the book hopefully has exposure at conferences and maybe they're going to send the author to conferences. So these are the things that the that the uh, publisher is going to do. But in terms of like, um, you know, maybe the author wants to create some swag or the author is reaching out to local booksellers in their area or starts to reach out to local schools. Maybe the author has contacts that can help publicize the book that the publisher doesn't necessarily know about. So the first thing I say to authors, like be the stage manager of your own publicity, like have your own plan and then work with your publisher to bring your plan and their plan together. The other thing I say is let your publisher know about every single thing you do for publicity. And you can wait until the end of the week and then write it all in one email, but I want them to know and I want you to copy me on it. And the reason is the more you do, the more they can do for you. So you might say to yourself, oh, I'm going to do this event. You know, I set it up, the publisher, you know, I'm sure they're happy if I do it, but, but I'm not gonna mention it to my, to my publicist. But then if you go and mention that to your publicist and your publicist says, oh, we do a ton of events for them. Like here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get you, you know, a uh, hundred extra copies, you know, available in that bookstore. Or I'm going to make sure they have the special stand for your book in that bookstore or, um, you know, oh, we're going to set it up so you get paid for that event. Or maybe we can get you uh, cover your, you know, flights to that conference, et cetera. So the more you do, the more they can do for you. Um, so it's really important to let them know. So that's the other piece of advice I give to writers is like, make sure that you're communicating your plans to your publisher. Um, because sometimes writers forget that that's a really uh, important communic communicative step as well. Is there ever a situation in which it wouldn't be advantageous to let your publisher know what you're planning to do for promotion? I can't imagine. I mean, I'd have to think about it, but I can't imagine why that would be a problem because why would you want to do something that if your publisher knew about it, that would be a bad thing. Like I would question that that logic. Um, 
I don't know. I feel like you, I, you could come out with an example and I'm just not thinking clearly about it, but I, you know, I, I, you really, you know, your publisher is your teammate as is your agent. You know what I mean? I think if there's a conflict, you go to your agent first. Um, but beyond that, like we're all pulling in the same direction again, 90% of the time. So, um, you want your team to know what you're up to because they're, they're, you know, working for you in that way. Um, and they can be supportive. Talking about that uh, 10% of question, I wanted to make sure I asked you, and I, I forgot earlier, um, is going back to agent etiquette. Uh, obviously, if somebody is listening to this and they already have an agent, they want to get rid of that agent, they want to sign up with John Cusick. Uh, so what is the best way to break up with an agent, and what is the best way to approach a new agent after you've been represented? Um, first of all, I think that it's, uh, it's really important first that you have a, a, an open conversation with your agent before you break up. Because like I said, I think sometimes there are things that appear to be conflicts or sometimes we can interpret certain behaviors or a lack of communication as meaning one thing when really it's about something else. Um, so I think it's always a really good idea to be very candid and upfront with your agent. Say like, first of all, hey, can we get on the phone? Right, that's usually a phone call. Um, and sort of say like, listen, these are my concerns. I feel like, um, you know, you're not really enthusiastic about this book that I'm enthusiastic about, or I worry because, you know, you said you were going to send this out, and uh, you know, I never heard back about that. Like, whatever your 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 problems are, and those are all plenty legitimate. But give your agent a chance to have a conversation with you about it, because I think that there is a a chance of misinterpreting things to the point where it's like you fire the first shot and you fire your agent and uh, and you really didn't need to. Like it was a conflict that could be resolved and now you're agentless, right? But let's say you know you know it's time to, uh, to part ways. The first thing I think you need to do is look at your representation agreement um, with your agent and make sure you understand what happens when you fire your agent. So some agency agreements might have a 30-day grace period where you're not allowed to sign with anybody else. Um, different agencies have different policies about what happens to the books they represented or unlicensed, uh, unsold subrights or stuff like that. So it's really important that you know your contract, first of all, and what to expect. Um, beyond that, I think that it's really just a question of, you know, I, I think an email is fine. I know that it's, you know, maybe a little bit impersonal, but, um, you know, this is a hard conversation to have. If you know, again, like you've had the come to Jesus talk, you've talked through the problems, and now you know you're going to fire your agent. Um, I think you send an email. And no matter how much uh, animosity there might or might not be there, you do it in a professional way. Um, you know, I think if as a, as a writer, you are always taking the high road, you can never go wrong. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, you part ways in a professional way. You say, you know, thank you so much for all you've done for me. I really feel like at this point in my career, um, it's time for us to part ways. Um, Should you then help out the agent by pointing out all the issues she had with him and, hey, for the future, fix these behaviors? Or is that just a terrible idea? I mean, you know, doesn't sound like a great idea to me. I, I think if you've, if you've had that conversation with the agent already, you know, and there's nothing wrong with saying in your email, you know, you know, I feel like we're, you know, as we discussed, you know, we don't really have the same vision for this book or, um, you know, I understand why you only chose to send out my book to three people, but that's really not the kind of enthusiasm I was looking for. And, you know, for those reasons, I feel like it's probably best if we part ways. Like, again, you're sort of phrasing it in a polite way. Um, 
but but definitive. You know what I mean? Like you you can fire your agent. Most agency agreements aren't termed. You can walk when you want to walk. Um, so I think that it's important to be really firm. Like and I, you know and so you know I'm I, I, it's time for us now to part ways. And thank you for your uh, you know your efforts and you know. If you need, you know, some paperwork from me or whatnot, please let me know. Sincerely, so and so. Um, but just be clear, polite, and definitive. Um, you know, do your research with your agency agreement first, and then that's the best way to do it. Um, do not query other agents before you fire your agent. It will absolutely blow up in your face um, because agents talk to each other, and you know, if an author of mine went out before firing me and queried other people, I would immediately get five emails from my colleagues saying like, hey, John, don't you represent so-and-so or didn't you used to represent so-and-so? What's the deal? And now not only have you really burned a bridge with me because that's like, come on, man. Um, but those agents aren't gonna work with you either because they now know that you lie to your current agent, that you weren't upfront, you weren't clear. you know. Um, so that's a really, really bad idea. Um, so you want to part ways with your agent before you officially query or go out looking for representation elsewhere. Um, and then is there I, a way to uh, sort of, oh, I guess, flirt with an agent oh, a little what? bit and have a really strong idea that you're not going to be agentless once you're, it's a pretty momentous thing, especially if you're an author that's waited, you know, two or three years of query letters to finally get the agent that you have. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for me personally, I am happy to talk to an author you know, who's not happy with their agent, um, you know, if they come to me. I, I've had the thing happen a few times where a client of mine will say, hey, listen, you know, <clears throat> my friend, uh, you know, Billy is not really happy with his agent. He's wondering if maybe he should part ways. Um, you know, I know he's a fan of yours. Would you consider talking to him? And um, almost in a more sort of like, uh, in terms of giving advice, I'll talk. I'll talk to the author and sort of talk through what their issues are with their agent, what I think, and whatnot. Um, and I, you know, and if it's someone I would really like to work with, I, I won't mince words. I'll say, listen, you know, if if you do decide to leave your agent, um, you know, I I love your work. I would of course love to work with you if that's something that you're you're interested in. Um, you know, so keep me posted. You know, um, so I think that that's fine. But I think uh, you know that's a very sort of personal and off the record conversation in a way. And I think that is different and, and much more fair than say like just starting to query other agents because then it, then it becomes very public if you're sending out, you know, emails to half a dozen or a dozen uh, of, of, you know, your agents peers. That makes sense. Yeah. And on the same lines, what are some indications that maybe your agents just not that into you anymore? Uh, when can authors get that feeling that maybe it, if they don't break up with their agent, their agent might be about to break up with them. Um, I I I hesitate to to talk about things in terms of is my agent into me or not. I I I'm much more interested in is my agent representing me well, right? Um, because I think different agents show enthusiasm in different ways, and I think that if what an author needs is show like demonstrative enthusiasm at all times, that might not be uh, synonymous with the agent doing their job well, right? That so 
So I want to I want to caution authors about worrying about like is my agent into me? You know, do they like me anymore? Did they like that book? You know, <clears throat> if your agent doesn't want to work with you anymore, I think one of two things will happen: either you'll be fired, or you'll you know you will want to fire them because they're not communicating with you or they're not sending out your material, right? Um, but I think that this concern about like oh does my agent still like my stuff? You know, it's really what you should be focused on is are they doing their job? Because all the enthusiasm in the world doesn't matter if they're not doing their job well, right? What was the question? <laughs> I got so caught up on that. Oh, we were just talking about uh, ways to know that uh, your agent is no longer interested in you and you, you okay. need to start making a plan for escape. Yeah. Um, so I think um, communication is key, right? If they're not getting back to you, that's something that you want to address with them. And I think that's a moment where you write an email and say, like, hey, I'd really like uh, to have uh, a quick check-in phone call. Like, is there any time this week that you can jump on the phone? You know what I mean? Like, give them a chance to schedule it. But that's where you got to check in and see, what is the deal here? Is the agent just really busy? Have they actually done the things that they said they've done and I just haven't heard about it? Because some, sometimes agents will go and do what they said they would do but they're not going to immediately write to the author and say, okay, I just did what I said I would do. You know what I mean? So that communication is important. Um, I think that, uh, you know, apart from not getting back to you quickly and not sending out material, I think, you know, if, if your agent has submitted more than one project of yours and it hasn't sold, that's a sign that you guys aren't a great fit. So should we make that determination around book number two, number three, or does it, does I, it I depend mean, on where you're at in the I think particular it, situation? I think it depends on the particular situation, but um, I think, you know, my rule of thumb is like, you know, let's say I, I sign an author based on a particular book. Let's say that book doesn't sell. It's not the end of the world. I, I represent authors and their books, but like I will say to the writer like, okay, what, what's next? You know, that didn't work out. We talk about why, but now we move on to the next thing. If by the second book, <coughs> or maybe even the third, we haven't gotten any interest, we haven't gotten close, it's a total wash, that's around the time that I as an agent will start to think to myself, I don't know if it's me or you, but something's not working, right? Like we keep trying, something's not clicking, maybe I don't have the right editorial vision for your work, or maybe you're not listening to me enough, you know, that's happened too. So, you know, I think that um, around that time, that tells me that something isn't working in this relationship. Um, maybe it's time for that author to have a different agent who has a fresher point of view, who has a different outlook on their career, maybe a different plan for how to bring it forward. Um, so that's certainly, I think, a time to, to reassess whether or not it's time to get a new agent, you know? Now, coming back to, uh, if I'm an author that uh, had an agent that book number three didn't work out and they fired me, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm crushed and I wait the appropriate month, but then I, I, I see this uh, wonderful podcast, uh, YouTube video, and say, John Cusick, obviously the best man ever, and I come to you and you're interested in representing me. I assume sooner or later you're going to ask, hey, what happened with that other agent? Why were you fired? What is the best response to them? Sure. So um, my philosophy is that, you know, people... Uh, oftentimes have different agents throughout their career. And there's nothing wrong with that in principle. Um, it certainly doesn't bother me if an, if an author has been represented by an agent before because also people part ways from their agents for all manner of reasons, right? Um, 
you know, it could be that the agent decided to start representing different kinds of material. Their agent could have left the business. Uh, maybe their agent wasn't doing their job and that author fired them for really good reason. Um, you know, it, so it doesn't really ruffle my feathers if an author has been uh, represented by before at all. In fact, about a third, I think, of my list at this point are authors who had agents before me. And I'm sort of taking them into the next phase of their career. It's sort of become a little niche of mine, which I like. Um, that said, I think that um, it's totally fine to let agents know in your query letter, like, I was represented before, my agent and I, you know, have, have parted ways, and I'm happy to answer any questions about that you might have. And, then and that's in the query right up front on Main Street? Yeah, that's, I, I would put it there, because that way there's no question about you hiding any kind of material. Like, you don't need to go into a great deal of detail about it. If I'm interested, I'll, I'll ask. And if I want to work with you, I'll certainly want to talk to you about it. But, you know, you're just saying, this is the case. Um, if you want to talk about it, that's fine. I can give you the full rundown. But, you know, really, you're there to talk about this particular book. I think the other detail that's really important to include uh, is whether or not that project was submitted by your previous agent. That's a really important detail. Um, because that can affect who I can submit it to. You know, it's going to affect my read on the book. That's something that I absolutely need the author to be honest with and upfront with um, first and foremost. So I would so suggest- you need like a list of every editor that has seen the manuscript thus far? Not in the query letter, certainly not. Um, but <clears throat> Again, I would phrase it like the thing with, with you know, I was with an agent before. I would say, you know, this project has been seen by a handful of editors, um, but, you know, otherwise is, is fresh to the market. Or, you know, we did send this one out, you know, last year, um, but I have, you know, dramatically done a revision since then and no one has seen the revised. Like just giving me a quick photo, uh, you know, a quick picture like that of, of the uh, situation is helpful for me because that gives me, you know, it gives me a, a, a sense of the history of this project. Um, and, you know, if I want more details, knowing that the author is open to sharing them is really, is really helpful. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And the more information they can arm you with, the better job you can do when you go out to, yeah, that seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't need to go into all that detail right there in the query. You know, that's something that you and I can talk about, you know, down the line. Right. That'd be like a first date. Uh, saying everything that went wrong with my previous relationships, but right. I'm really hoping about this one. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Let's, uh, for a moment before I forget, I wanted to make sure I ask you a little bit about diversity. Um, mm -hmm. All joking aside, I'm, I've already got egg on my face for starting the book by recommending my own book for uh, <laughs> Black History Month, but I do. I also recommend Zora and Me, The Cursed Ground by T.R. Simon. That's a book I read a couple of months ago. You can read my review on the blog. Absolutely wonderful book. Uh, by someone that's, that's not a white person. I've also uh, chatted with uh, Maurice Broadus, who's a friend of mine. Um, he teaches seminars here locally on Afrofuturism. And he has assured me that although uh, Banneker Bones belongs in the category of African-American fiction because the uh, protagonist is African-American. I can't call it Afrofuturism, even though it's a, um, a black cast in sci-fi, uh, because the author uh, is not African-American. So while we're on the topic of diversity, I'm going to read you a question, and I'm going to read it word for word because I want to be real precise with the wording. Uh, we're going to have Lamar Giles on here in March, which is going to be very exciting. Uh, I've got his new book, The uh, Last Last Day of Summer, uh, sitting on my to-be-read pile. I can't wait to get started with it. Yeah. Uh, he is one of the founding members of We Need Diverse Books. 
And that organization exists, of course, because we need diverse books in traditional publishing. Uh, traditional publishing, like many American institutions, certainly not alone, uh, does not have a great track record of inclusivity. Uh, so when you are, uh, what are you seeing publishers doing to increase the diversity in the books that they're offering? And what are you personally doing um, to increase the diversity in the books that are being offered? Sure. So um, one thing I think is really important to emphasize for writers, if they don't know it already, is that um, books by underrepresented voices from underrepresented points of view and uh, about a diverse cast are absolutely desired by agents and publishers. Um, it, 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 I don't know if this is the right phrase, but it, it broke my heart when I, I realized that there were all these writers out there who, because I didn't, hadn't said explicitly for a while on Twitter that I was looking for diverse voices, didn't think I was interested in their work. And that just killed me. Um, so I think if you don't know that already, yes, agents are interested. I'm interested. We're actively looking. It's a big part of my list. And uh, publishers are too. Um, so the, so movements like, like we need diverse books have, you know, done so much incredible work in terms of changing the perception of what's in demand. Um, and I think that, uh, they are, they have been instrumental in, you know, changes that have led to the New York times bestseller list being, you know, filled with women of color, you know, uh, which is absolutely amazing. That said, uh, and I think that that the we need diverse books uh, founders would probably agree with this. Um, publishing has a long way to go. It's still overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly cisgendered, um, you know. And I think that what industry professionals like like myself and my colleagues need to be doing, apart from supporting and um, getting behind uh, underrepresented voices and authors. Um, is also supporting and getting behind and making space for um, people in the industry of color. Um, you know, publishing's history, in New York at least, is very much a like white, waspy, aristocratic industry. It's like, I'll go into books because I don't need to make money, but this seems fun and artsy. And like, you know, there, it's a very white industry uh, historically. And um, though there's been increased awareness, you know, change is still slow to happen. So when I, okay, so what I do as, a, as, a, um, as an agent is um, first and foremost, if I'm asked to participate, say, in a panel um, and everyone on the panel is white, um, I defer. I don't agree to go on it. What I do is I suggest one of my colleagues who's not a white guy or a white woman, in fact. Um, so that's one thing I think is really important. Um, I think in terms of how uh, we support things on social media, this is a very small thing, but my personal philosophy is to um, just boost. So I just retweet. I retweet the We Need Diverse books, uh, tweets and posts. Um, I try and support not only my own authors, but um, other authors of color. Uh, I think that's a really important thing for, for us to do. That's a very small thing. Um, but I think probably the biggest thing that people like me who aren't in management positions can do is to really advocate to management um, the hiring and support of non-white people. Um, because I think that publishing isn't going to really change if 
all the editorial board meetings are filled up with mostly or entirely with white people. And if, you know, the majority of the top tier bosses are all white guys. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a white guy, but if those are the only voices in the room, that's going to affect the way things are bought and publicized and, and thought of. There's just no question about it. Um, and then the final thing I'll, I'll say is I think that it's really important and, 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 you know, a, a lot of people get this. And I'm certainly saying nothing new, um, but it's really important to be very aware of tokenism. So, for instance, um, there's a lot of demand for for diverse for diversity, right? In in publishing, particularly in YA. I once had an editor, you know, tell me, um, "Well, you know, I liked this book, but we've also got this book by uh, this other Indian author," as if we've got our Indian author already, right? And you wouldn't hear that comment about a white author. No, 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 too many white, too many white people coming out oh, this year. We yeah, can't I mean, do that. Could you imagine if, if someone said, uh, well, you know, we've already got a book about, um, you know, a white girl meeting a guy on a, a white boy on a beach. Like we can't do another one of those. Like, oh my God, you know? So uh, I think that's something to be, to be aware of, like within the fervor of, you know, we want diverse books, we want diverse voices. It's not enough to just get your, um, you know, your one person and then say, look, look at us, look what we did. It's about um, different kinds of stories, different kinds of perspectives. Um, I don't necessarily, you know, I definitely don't think that writers of color are obligated to tell certain kinds of stories. Um, you know, so remembering that as we acquire and, and, and build our lists, I think is really important. Um, so these are some of the things I think that um, people like me can do that I try to do. Um, but, you know, when it comes to writers, I guess my, my first word of advice is just if you don't feel in demand, if you don't feel like your book is going to be of interest, it's not true. It, it, it definitely is. Um, yeah. And obviously, it still has to be a well-crafted story. It still has to transport the reader and 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 be able to compete in the market as an excellent book. Uh, another question I wanted to ask on the back of that uh, is that um, you are not a seventeen-year-old girl. Uh, I, as I mentioned, I write books no. about detectives, so I'm very uh, very observant about these details. Uh, but you wrote uh, Cherry Money Baby, which is, uh, I believe, from the first person perspective of a um, of a 17 year old girl. Am I right on that, or am I misremembering? It's the third person. It is third person, but I don't blame you because, as you said that, I was like, "Oh, wait, is it?" <laughs> I forgot to. No, it's it definitely. Isn't. It feels very close that the author obviously knows the character very close there, uh, and has a has a great deal of affection. I've written. Uh, I mentioned Manicure. I've also written All Right Now. Uh, the uh, premise of that one I always found fun is I thought, what if, what if my uh, uh, father-in-law uh, was in the zombie apocalypse and surrounded by just the craziest uh, church of white people? Uh, so it would just be conflict within conflict. So obviously I have no uh, no issues with going out and tackling um, a voice that's very much different than my own. I feel that that's what it what being an author is about. Why are we doing this if not to uh, empathize, empathize and um, see the world through the perspective of a different character? Um, but what are your thoughts and tips for authors that want to write from different perspectives? And what, if any, have you encountered might be limitations for that author when they go to the market? Uh, at one point, and I've got a whole post on this I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, um, about uh, diversity in traditional publishing that's, uh, I think, four or five years old now, though more than that, six or seven. So the, the industry has changed dramatically uh, since that time. But I was told point blank by someone who will remain nameless 
that we might have better chance, a uh, better chance of publishing Bannerker Bones and the giant robot bees if my character were white. And that was my line in the sand. I said, nope, we're, we're done. We, we can't have a serious conversation past that. So what are the um, what are the conflicts that authors can expect to have, if any? And what tips would you have for authors that uh, do want to write through through a voice that's different than their own? Um, that's a really big question. I think that, uh, you know, the the first thing I think that it's that's important. I've addressed uh, rooms full of exclusively white writers on this topic. And, and, and there's something that I, I often say in those situations, which is that as writers, I think that um, it's our job to imagine perspectives that aren't our own. So maybe I've never been in a car crash, but I can write a scene about being in a car crash. Um, but there is limits to all of our experiences and understanding. And I think that it's, you know, in addition to being empathetic uh, creators, we have to be empathetic people and understand that there are certain experiences of life that we might just not understand or we might make mistakes about because of our inherent biases. Um, so, you know, as a writer, I believe it's your job to bring some form of pleasure or meaning into the world. Um, so that also takes uh, with it a lot of responsibility. Um, so I think that it's really your job as a writer, if you are going to be writing from a perspective that's not your own um, or uh, about you know events in your life that A, aren't your own and B, are incredibly charged and could be potentially really painful and emotionally uh, hurtful to people who have gone through those experiences when they're represented wrong, um, it's really your job as the writer to first of all, listen, um, do your research, and also, I, you know, I think that the practice of sensitivity readers is a really great one. Um, not for the purpose of covering your butt, but for the purpose of uh, learning and, you know, becoming a better writer and avoiding, um, you know, your own blind spots. I'll give you an example from my own experience. So, um, right now, two of my authors, Lynn Mayatani and Courtney Alameda, are working on a book set in Japan. It's called Seven Deadly Shadows. It's going to come out next year. And um, the main character is Japanese. Um, you know, Valin's background is uh, 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 she's a Japanese American. Um, and when I was reading and reviewing the first uh, version of that novel, one of my critiques was like, um, oh, this character, I, you know, why doesn't she stand up to these bullies in this scene? Or why doesn't she stand up to her teacher? And, and you know, I was getting very specific about like sort of her proactivity and, and you know, these little just character details that had nothing to do with culture as far as I knew. Um, and Valin, bless her, uh, very graciously came to me and said like, John, there's something that you don't understand about the difference between American culture and Japanese culture and the way this moment would play out. Like what you're talking about is from a very American perspective because of X, Y, and Z, and you know, in Japan it would be different because of these reasons. I had no idea. Um, and so my edits were, uh, were wrong, were just off, uh, because I have blind spots. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have a client who was able to sort of break it down for me and help me you know, understand. Um, I think we all have our blind spots, so I think that we should be cautious and aware of that as we go forward in our creative life. Um, because the consequence is, is to potentially, you know, unintentionally perhaps create something that can cause, uh, pain or misinterpretation, um, among others. So uh, that's why I feel like it's really sort of a responsibility to do that research and, and to, and to get it right. You know, 
your mind is free, and and if you if you have hands and a computer to write with, you can write any kind of story that that you want. Um, but I think especially when we're you know writing stories for children, we have to be extra conscious of the messages we're sending, even the ones we don't realize we're sending. Which is why I think this stuff is 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 so vital. Um, even while you know our imaginations are free, but we want you know once we're bringing those stories out into the world where they're affecting people, we want to be more conscientious. And I, I think that that's uh, you know, yeah, really important. I think anybody that uh, heard your thoughts on this subject would feel uh, tremendously heartened to want to to reach out to you and have your advice uh, when they're writing career. Uh, John, I could ask you questions all day. I'm aware, uh, painfully aware that we are coming to the end of our time, uh, which makes me sad. So rather than asking you the, the 50 questions I'd like to ask you, uh, come back when you have an arc of the new middle grade book for me. Uh, I'll go through it in depth and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss the heck out of it and, and we'll talk a little bit more. But for today, uh, let me ask you this uh, catch-all question. Yeah. As both an author and a literary agent, what is the piece of advice you most wish someone had given to you and that you'd like to give to any authors out there listening or watching? Um, okay, well, well, in keeping with my brand, right, I'm going to give you two, one from the writer brain, one from the agent brain. Um, Nicely done. Well branded. <laughs> thank you. Um, first, from the agent brain, I think it's to remember that um, a publishing deal is not a reward for being a good and hardworking writer. Oftentimes, good and hardworking writers get publishing deals. But I think if you come to the publishing business as an opportunity to make money with your writing and understanding that publishers offer publishing deals because they think you are worth investing in because you will help them make money, you'll have a much more sort of realistic and grounded approach to how you approach your publishing business, the business of being a published author, which is really what publishing is. It's a business, right? Um, I think, you know, we all kind of know that somewhat, but if you can really remember it, it's going to help you uh, stay on track, I think. The thing that I want to share from the writer brain is, is I think that all writers go through two phases. One is where all, their writing is purely for their own self-expression. And then the second, in my opinion, more sophisticated uh, phase is when we start to think about our writing as a gift for someone else. So we're not just thinking about like, this is where I found the story and this is what I see in my mind as I'm describing it. We're thinking about, okay, what do I want the reader to come away with? What details do I show them? Because I want to communicate that this you know, character is a slob or this villain is jealous or whatnot. Um, so as a writer, I think I wish someone had communicated to me better sooner that writing novels is really about making something for someone else more so than it is about just expressing whatever mad business is going on in my head. And if I had known that sooner, I would have been a lot happier writing than um, I was for a while. And I think I would have probably found my, my niche a little bit faster. Um, so yeah, so those are my two, that's my agent brain writer brain advice for you. You can't do any better than that. Very straightforward. Anybody that uh, employs that advice is going to be in a, in a much better spot. Uh, remind esteemed audience where they can find you online again. Um, so I, uh, you can find me on foliojunior.com. That's my official agency page. Uh, I am on Twitter at, at John M. Cusick. Um, and once again, that YouTube channel is uh, Agent Brain, Writer Brain. And you can just do youtube.com slash Agent Brain, Writer Brain. That'll get you there. Outstanding. And um, for those of you that um, are um, 
looking forward to next uh, to new episodes we are going to have a couple of folks here in the next couple of weeks don't have uh, specific dates we do have a specific date february 22nd which i believe is a friday uh we're going to have author tommy greenwald uh who's offer who's the author of the charlie joe jackson books that's going to be a, a huge throw we're looking forward to that uh as always keep tabs with what's going on uh with the show at middlegradeninja.com do not forget to download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. If you like me, you like the show, check out the book. Make sure that I'm not just talking up here, that I actually do know how to write. Uh, and if you like it, please leave a review. That's a huge help. Uh, John, I've been uh, asking guests to say our official uh, uh, sign-off phrase because, uh, you know, we want to stick with the ninja theme. So the sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Absolutely. Hi-ya and what have you. Oh, that was perfect. John, thank you so much for being here. This has been an absolute pleasure, and I'm looking forward to talking with you again in the near future. Sounds great, man. Thank you so much.